to know him meant to encounter Catholicism and uh, and sometimes a uh, a somewhat pugnacious form <laughs> of, of Catholicism. But um, but but still, I think she had had a respect and an appreciation for it uh, be, because of him. That's a way in which we can witness to the faith uh, with friends who are, who are different from us. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Hey, everybody. Welcome to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines each week. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. This week on the podcast, we are talking about friendship. And in fact, we're talking about unusual friendships, friendships you wouldn't expect. This week, we'll bring you the stories of a few unlikely friendships and one friendship so unlikely, it probably wasn't actually a friendship at all, even though at the time, many people thought it was. Later in our show, Princeton professor Robert George, who is well known as a conservative, tells us about the day that sparked his longtime friendship with Democratic Socialist Cornel West. And after that, we'll dig into the complicated relationship between Blessed Pius IX and the Confederate States of America during the Civil War. But first, our Deputy Editor-in-Chief Michelle LaRosa brings you into the corridors of power, friendship at the Supreme Court of the United States. Here's Michelle. His personality is pretty much what everybody everybody saw. I mean, he was, he, he was uh, what you saw is what you got. Antonin Scalia was born in Trenton, New Jersey, the son of an Italian immigrant, and grew up in New York City. He was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1986 and served until his unexpected death at age 79 in 2016. Very, very strong personality and uh, very strong intellect and uh, liked to debate things and uh, by his own admission was a contrarian and, and would, you know, would take the opposing view just, just for the heck of it at times and uh, would even do that in family situations. This is Father Paul Scalia. He's vicar for clergy in the Diocese of Arlington and son of the late Justice Scalia. Also was gregarious, had a great sense of humor, loved to sing and to tell jokes and had you know, a broad variety of interests from hunting and fishing to, uh, to the opera, like the outdoors. And uh, so he was um, very much a man in full as, 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 as the saying goes. And uh, he was a devout Catholic. Took his faith very seriously, had a great uh, love uh, for the church's uh, liturgy and especially uh, the, the traditional mass. Uh, great love for the church's intellectual uh, tradition and the integrity of the church's faith and uh, doctrine. As the longest serving justice on the bench at the time of his death, Justice Scalia is remembered for many things, including his strong emphasis on interpreting the law as it was originally written and intended. But one of the most enduring things people remember about Scalia is his friendship with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who still sits on the court to this day. Ginsburg, raised in a Jewish home in Brooklyn, is known for her long legal career fighting gender discrimination, as well as her liberal rulings on issues facing the Supreme Court. I just remember mom and dad would would 
go to these uh, New Year's Eve parties with the Ginsburgs or at the Ginsburgs place. And uh, and they would go to like four in the morning, you know, and um, and so they and they they really enjoyed uh, particularly that, you know, that party every year. And so the first I heard, you know, the Ginsburgs were just sort of this, um, you know, this couple that my parents got to know and 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 really just enjoyed spending time with. If you know anything about Justices Scalia and Ginsburg, you probably know that they disagreed on quite a lot when it came to politics and their interpretation of the Constitution. I think it's, it strikes us as weird in part because we live in such polarized times. This is Chris Scalia, another of Justice Scalia's sons. They are themselves kind of heroes of very different sides. You know, the notorious RBG is a legend for the left. And my father is kind of the equivalent for um, the conservative legal movement. So I think that makes it even stranger to people. He said his father and Justice Ginsburg saw their disagreements as mutually enriching. When they were on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals together in the early 80s, none of the other judges on that court really liked getting feedback. But he and Justice Ginsburg, at that point Judge Ginsburg, liked feedback uh, from other people. And so they gave that to each other. And she said that he helped her opinions by just identifying the soft spots in the arguments and helping helping her kind of bolster them and strengthen, strengthen them, even though ultimately he wouldn't agree with them. And she, I, I heard her joke recently that um, she would help his opinions or try to help his opinions by pointing out instances in which perhaps he was a little too strident. And I got a good laugh from the audience and she went on to say I, he didn't really take that advice very often. Part of the friendship between the two justices, Father Paul said, was a mutual love of debate. She was a, a sparring partner with him. My, my father liked people who would match him and who would who would push back. And uh, and I, I think, you know, it might have something to do with growing up in in, you know, in New York City and just, you know, sort of that uh, that give and take. And, you know, you got to got to be a little tough. And so he really liked it when when people would would push back on things and challenge him on things. He would hire clerks uh, who would challenge him on things. He wanted that. He wanted that. Um, that intellectual engagement, and um, because he knew that it was good for him, because it would test his his uh, line of thought and his principles. There's a certain cultural fascination with Scalia and Ginsburg. For years, major publications ran articles pondering how two people with such different perspectives could possibly have an authentic friendship. You know, obviously they had big differences uh, um, as far as their jurisprudence went, but uh, it's really not that strange when you consider, that is, their friendship isn't all that strange when you consider the many things that they had in common. These similarities included growing up in New York around the same time, enjoying good food and wine, and a love of opera. And I think that's, a, that's an important lesson from their friendship. It's that it's, uh, I think we all have friends with people who disagree with us, and we, we focus on the things we have in common. And if you're not able to do that, um, I don't know, you live, that just seems like a pretty kind of uh, disappointing or, or limited life to me. And I think, I think they would probably say something along the same lines. When asked about their friendship in a 2014 interview, Justice Scalia seemed to brush off suggestions that it was somehow extraordinary. I have never gotten 
angry at Ruth or at any of my colleagues uh, because of the way they voted in an opinion. I mean, if you cannot uh, disagree with your colleagues on the law without uh, taking it personally, you ought to get another day job. I mean, it's, 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 it's just not the kind of a, uh, of, of a job that will allow you to behave that way. So Ruth and I disagree on the law all the time, but it's never had anything to do with our, with our friendship. This ability to disagree respectfully was a key component in their friendship. It wasn't personal with him. He he liked the uh, the argument, and he and he would he would boy he would eviscerate you know your opinion if he thought it was stupid. And um, but but he 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 always saw that as distinct from you. They also shared a sense of humor. Chris said, "I think one of the reasons Justice Ginsburg liked my father was that." Uh, he cracked her up <laughs> when they sat next to each other on the on the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. He used to whisper jokes to her and she would have to pinch herself to keep from laughing out loud during arguments. And then when they were on the Supreme Court, uh, they didn't sit, sit next to each other. So my dad passed notes down to her. and She again had to kind of pinch herself to keep from laughing. And that was, you know, that that affection. Um, you know, he loved making her laugh, and obviously she liked laughing. So uh, I think that's just a, a wonderful uh, element of their friendship. And in the current political landscape, marked by deep division and polarization, Chris said that Americans can learn a lot from his father's friendship with Justice Ginsburg. They remind us that we share a lot more than politics. There is a lot more to life than political opinion. Um, it is possible to disagree with somebody, to have very different outlooks on life and politics and the law and, and your profession, but focus instead on, on what you have in common and things in life that you, that you both enjoy and focus on those things and, um, and develop a, a real friendship out of those things. Father Paul said that his father's friendship with Justice Ginsburg was a way of evangelizing. I think my father was was aware of giving good witness to to the Catholic faith, and that was part of who he was. And so, in his friendship with her, that was going to be that was going to be part of it. And um, she has always shown a great a great respect for. Uh, I mean, at, you know, at my father's funeral, at very at, at other uh, occasions with the family. Uh, she, you know, she's shown great respect for our faith. And, you know, she was at the cemetery there with the other justices when my father was buried. And, um, and, and so, uh, I, I think that, uh, that respect that she's shown comes from, you know, her, her respect and affection for him. And so I think that this is the, you know, that this is the beginning of evangelization is, is simply demonstrating the capacity to be, um, to be a serious Catholic, but also capable of, of, of friendship. And, and friendship with somebody who, 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 who is different. To know him meant to encounter Catholicism and, uh, and sometimes a, uh, a somewhat pugnacious form <laughs> of, of Catholicism. But, um, but, but still, I think she had, had a respect and an appreciation for it uh, be, because of him. That's a way in which we can witness to the faith uh, with friends who are, who are different from us. Father Paul also said that while the friendship between his father and Justice Ginsburg may have been unique, his experience was that all of the Supreme Court justices were very kind and respectful toward one another, even while disagreeing in their opinions. Living in the D.C. area, one of the things that, that I, I saw kind of growing up was that 
you have to be good to people. You have to be kind and civil because you might end up sitting next to them at a dinner party at some point, <laughs> you know. And and uh, and there, there's something healthy about that. And and uh, just disagreeing with a person doesn't mean that you have to be disagreeable. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Michelle Larosa. Hey guys. So normally this doesn't happen on our show, but Michelle carried a lot of water in this episode, and we have two back-to-back segments narrated by her. So once again, here's Deputy Editor-in-Chief Michelle LaRosa to bring us another story of an unlikely friendship. One day back in 2006, Princeton professor Robert George was in his office when a student came in and told him about a new magazine at the university. He said, Professor George, we're starting a new student magazine on campus here at Princeton. It's going to be called uh, The Green Light. And uh, it's going to be a magazine of arts, culture, politics, uh, literature, contemporary affairs. And uh, beginning with the inaugural issue, which we want to have out in a couple of months, we're going to feature in each issue an interview of one professor by another professor. The student said he had reached out to Professor Cornell West, a prominent scholar of philosophy and African-American studies, about conducting the first interview. He had agreed and said that he would like to interview Robert George. I was very flattered and honored that uh, Cornell would uh, uh, identify me as the person to interview. We have a campus filled with outstanding scholars. So I was um, honored and touched that he would do that. And so I said, well, of course, uh, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to do that. Originally, I think we were supposed to go for an hour. Uh, We had enough tape for an hour, but uh, we blew through that hour. Uh, We ended up talking for about four hours, at which point I looked down uh, at my watch and discovered it was about six o'clock. I just couldn't pull myself away and he couldn't pull himself away. So we were continuing to uh, wrestle with these issues uh, together. I said, it's been a wonderful conversation. You and I really need to talk more often. We need to get together. Let's have lunch sometime soon. Uh, We need to become better acquainted. We're certainly interested in all the same issues. And he said, oh, Brother Robbie, that would be wonderful. We really do need to do that. From that four-hour conversation came a friendship that some may find surprising. Robert George is among the leading conservative intellectuals in the United States. He's a professor of jurisprudence who writes extensively about natural law and has co-authored books opposing abortion and same-sex marriage. Cornell West is a democratic socialist who describes himself as radical and provocative. He's a social activist who has written extensively on race issues and vocally supports Bernie Sanders for president. But the two have developed a friendship that transcends their different worldviews. Cornell West is one of my dearest friends in the world, someone I have enormous affection for, as well as a great deal of uh, admiration. Even before they became friends, Professor George said he was struck by Professor West's approach to academic dialogue when they would encounter each other at faculty seminars. When we were discussing serious philosophical and ethical questions, I would ordinarily think he's on the wrong side or he's come to the wrong conclusions. But I was always impressed by uh, how uh, cogent and uh, logically tight his reasoning was. And beyond that, that he was always asking the right questions, even if I thought he was getting to the wrong answers, many of that answers different from the ones that uh, I reached or thought was true. He was asking all the right questions. About a week after their interview for the magazine, the college announced that it wanted more senior faculty members to teach freshman seminars. Professor George reached out to Professor West and proposed that they jointly teach a great book seminar. 
Professor West agreed. They each picked six books that were important in their own intellectual and personal formation, and the class covered one book each week. They read Plato, St. Augustine, John Dewey, C.S. Lewis, and Martin Luther King Jr., among others. The class was a big hit. As soon as I got in the classroom with Cornell, from the very first session, it was just magical. Uh, we just had that special chemistry that people sometimes have. And, and when you have that in the teaching context, uh, it really is magic. The students were clearly enjoying it and benefiting uh, from our interactions and our interacting with them uh, together and separately. The seminar at Princeton received a lot of positive feedback, with students saying they learned a lot and were enriched by the experience. So they continued teaching it and eventually opened a similar seminar for upperclassmen. Professor George said that students coming into the class knew that he was conservative and Professor West was progressive, so they knew they were going to be seeing two very different perspectives. What surprised some of the students was not the areas of disagreement between the two professors, but how much they actually agreed on things. I think they probably thought the two of the coming in that the two of us didn't share anything. Well, it turns out we share quite a lot. We share a belief in the importance of liberal arts education. We share an, a, a commitment to the idea that truth-seeking is what universities are all about. Uh, we share the belief that you can't seek truth in the context of a university properly unless there is a culture of free speech, free inquiry, free discussion. We have a deeply shared common Christian uh, faith. Uh, we both believe that human beings are fashioned in the very image and likeness of God. So we. We believe that's the foundation of our dignity of human beings, and indeed that people have a, a, a dignity, a, a profound, inherent, and, and equal dignity. Well, that's actually a lot of sharing, uh, and it gives you a, a basis on which you can conduct civil discourse and hash out your disagreements and share your perspectives and challenge each other. Professor West left Princeton a few years ago, so he no longer teaches with Professor George on a regular basis. But even today, the two go around the country giving talks at universities and other venues. They discuss the importance of liberal arts education, free speech, and civil discourse, and they debate issues they disagree on. We have a wonderful time, and I, I dare say we learn a lot from each other. I certainly learn a lot from Cornell. But Professor George is concerned that friendships between people of differing viewpoints are becoming increasingly rare at many colleges. There's no question that uh, civil dialogue openness to challenging and being challenged, that's all uh, collapsing actually on many university campuses. And in academia generally, there's been a, a, a kind of falling away from an understanding of the importance of uh, open discourse, civil dialogue. People are so afraid of offending each other uh, that they won't state their own views. And, and some students, especially students who have conservative or religious beliefs, uh, especially traditional ones, are reluctant to say a word for fear of being stigmatized and marginalized and attacked on social media. He said that Professor West has been a major force in promoting open dialogue and exchange of ideas in an academic setting. He certainly chastises students on the progressive side uh, who try to stigmatize or marginalize dissent from progressive orthodoxies, even, even points on which he is himself totally with the progressive program. And he's a great encouragement to our conservative students he encourages them to speak their minds, to challenge these progressive dogmas that you find on, on campus. Again, even the ones that he himself shares, he, he wants our conservative students to challenge them. He knows that we're never gonna get at the truth of things unless there's an open dialogue in which people challenge and can be challenged. As part of their effort to restore free speech and civil discourse to American campuses, Robert George and Cornell West released a joint statement in 2017 
on truth-seeking democracy and freedom of thought and expression. The statement encouraged respectful dialogue and exchange of ideas on college campuses and opposed efforts to silence those who disagree with the majority. Close to 5,000 people signed on in agreement with the statement, mainly students, faculty, and administrators at colleges across the country. Professor George says that in his years of friendship with Professor West, he's learned a lot about teaching and also about courage. Cornell has not been at all uh, shy or unwilling to challenge people on his own side. Uh, he was deeply critical of President Obama on many issues. And that cost him friends. Uh, and that cost him a certain standing in the progressive community because criticizing Obama was really off, off limits. And yet Cornell did it. You learn and, and you're inspired uh, by seeing people do the right thing when it's easy to do the wrong thing. It doesn't matter whether I agree or disagree with Cornell on the substance of this or that issue. Standing on principle, showing courage, being a great teacher, uh, those have all had a very positive, strong impact on me. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Michelle LaRosa. Coming up after the break, did you know that Blessed Pius IX and Jefferson Davis were pen pals during the Civil War? It's true, kind of. CNA's managing editor, Carl Bunderson, will have the story of that unlikely friendship. Stay with us. You seem to think that the crime of heresy means a person committed a sin. I think a person. No, I, I think do, how dare you? Anybody, I do not. I, I think virtually anybody has the has the psychological capacity. Slander. I don't think to most the law. Add to the to law. The law. <laughs> to the law. Welcome to CNA Editor's Desk, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation every single week. Somehow, Carl, Carl was playing a game in which he expressed his opinions and still somehow won. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Carl, everybody. If you enjoy listening to the best, most informed commentary on the week's headlines from a Catholic perspective, subscribe to Editor's Desk right now. We're on every platform that there is, so just search for us and subscribe. Both of our shows are available wherever you get your podcasts. In the fall of 1863, the morale of the Confederacy was low. Only a few months earlier, Union forces had gained control of the entire Mississippi River, splitting the Confederate states in two and blocking their passage of supplies. Confederate forces had also just experienced a bloody defeat at the Battle of Gettysburg. In the fall of 1863, Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederate States of America, sat down at his desk in Richmond, Virginia, and wrote a letter to Pope Pius IX. Very venerable sovereign pontiff, the letter opened. The letters which you have written to the clergy of New Orleans and New York have been communicated to me and I have read with emotion the deep grief therein expressed for the ruin and devastation caused by the war which is now being waged by the United States against the states and people which have selected me as their president. Davis wrote that he felt a duty to express gratitude to the Pope for his pleas for peace. And to assure your holiness that the people, threatened even on their own hearths with the most cruel oppression and terrible carnage, is desirous now, as it has always been, to see the end of this impious war. He uh, said he was pleased to learn that the Pope and he shared a common point of view on what was going on, that they both uh, were hoping for peace, and Jefferson Davis 
uh, wrote that the South just wanted to be left in peace and had no territorial ambitions on against the North, which should leave them alone. I pray your holiness to accept, on the part of myself and the people of the Confederate States, our sincere thanks for your efforts in favor of peace. May the Lord preserve the days of your holiness and keep you under his divine protection. Jefferson Davis In December, Davis received a letter from the Pope in response. The letter was addressed to the, quote, illustrious and honorable Jefferson Davis, President of the Confederate States of America. The Pope expressed his happiness to hear that Davis was encouraged by his letters to the Archbishops of New York and New Orleans, letters that called for peace. And it has been very gratifying to us to recognize illustrious and honorable sir that you and your people are animated by the same desire for peace and tranquility. We, at the same time, beseech the God of pity to shed abroad upon you the light of his grace and attach you to us by a perfect friendship. News of the Pope's letter and its contents spread quickly across the South and the North. Perhaps Jefferson Davis was responsible for that. It uh, produced rather harsh reply, at least from the North. Northerners uh, kind of denounced the Pope for what they took to be a kind of recognition of the legitimacy of the Federacy. David Kurtzer is a Pulitzer-winning author and professor of anthropology and Italian studies at Brown University. He's written two books about Blessed Pius IX. I would say that Pius IX is the most important pope in modern church history. He had the dual role of uh, pope, but also pope-king, because he ruled as a temporal ruler over the papal states, which extended through uh, much of central Italy, with its capital in Rome. And by the time he died in um, 1878, 32 years later, there no longer was a papal state, which had lasted for a thousand years, and then there no longer was the role of the Pope as temporal ruler. Meanwhile, he had convened a Vatican Council, which proclaimed for the first time officially the doctrine of papal infallibility. So uh, he was important for many reasons. Kurtzer said the Pope was keeping tabs on the American Civil War long before he received that letter from Jefferson Davis in September 1863. He wrote to the archbishops of New Orleans and New York in 1862. Basically conveying to them his uh, hope for, for peace in the American Civil War. And he also was eventually interested in perhaps playing a role of a mediator. Although Blessed Pius IX was watching the Civil War unfold from a distance, Kurtzer said it's unlikely the Civil War was at the forefront of the Pope's mind. The Pope had uh, other things very much on his mind at the time. The Civil War begins in the same year, so 1861, is the year that the Italian state is founded and basically the official end of most of the papal states. So the Pope excommunicated the King of Italy, excommunicated all the leaders of Italy and said no good Catholic could support the notion that there's an Italian state which has taken over the lands of the, the papal states. This certainly would have been much higher priority for him than whatever was going on in the United States at the time. All the same, Blessed Pius IX took the time to reply to Davis's letter. He addressed Davis as illustrious and honorable, and closed the letter with his hope for a perfect friendship. Many took the Pope's words as a recognition of the Confederacy. But was it? 
The short answer? It's complicated. Remember, America was still a fairly new nation. The American Revolution had ended fewer than a hundred years prior. America and the Holy See were still navigating their relationship. And that relationship was, at times, pretty rocky. In 1854, nine years before Blessed Pius IX sent his letter to Jefferson Davis, Pius had sent something else to America, a stone donated for the construction of the Washington Monument. The marble slab was pulled from the ruins of a 4th century temple in Rome. One night in March of that year, nine men snuck onto the grounds of the monument. They poisoned the watchdog and bound the guard at gunpoint. Then, using sledgehammers, the men forced the Pope's marble stone from the wall of the monument. They loaded the stone into a rowboat on the nearby Potomac River, and after rowing out a short distance, dropped the stone into the river. The men were reportedly members of the Know Nothing Party, a prominent political party that was known for being anti-Catholic. But beyond America's history of anti-Catholicism, Kurtzer said, Blessed Pius IX stopped short of giving his official recognition to the Confederacy because of slavery. Hey everybody, JD here. I want to interrupt with a little clarifier on the church's teaching about slavery. The church's doctrinal position on slavery, on bound servitude, is, is tricky. Slavery has meant different things at different times in the world's history. In scripture, St. Paul encouraged a slave owner to treat his slave well. And for centuries, the church mostly took St. Augustine's position that slavery isn't like a, a part of the natural order of human society, but it isn't forbidden in all cases either. But the slave trade of the centuries of European colonization was very different from things like serfdom or indentured servitude, things the church usually meant when it had talked about bound servitude. As Europe founded new world colonies, slaves became commodities to be traded or sold like animals with absolutely no rights. And when there was a need for more slaves, conquest was cruel and brutal. Starting in the 15th century, popes began condemning that kind of slavery and ordering that slaves in the Americas and the Philippines and other European colonies be set free. In 1839, Pope Gregory XVI condemned the importation of slaves from Africa to the New World. And then Catholic social teaching in the last two centuries began to develop much more quickly. And the rights of all people to just working and economic conditions was more and more clearly articulated. The kind of slavery practiced by slave owners in the American South was definitely not okay with the church. But even that took a while to work out. Georgetown University, the oldest Catholic university in America, was built by slaves, a fact that Jesuits have recently apologized for. While the church's doctrine on servitude hasn't reversed itself, it has developed a lot, and it is rooted in a fundamental commitment to the dignity and freedom of all people who are made in the image and likeness of God. Anyway, back to the show. In the end, Blessed Pius IX declared strict neutrality. And in fact, did not want the bishops, whether north or south, to be taking positions. And he was quite critical of uh, the bishops, particularly northern bishops, who, uh, who took a position in favor of the, the northern cause. But also, he didn't want the southern bishops to come out in favor of the Confederacy either. The Civil War ended April 9, 1865. Days later, Lincoln was assassinated, and Davis was arrested as a suspect in the assassination. He was then indicted for treason and imprisoned for two years before being released. During his imprisonment, Davis received something else from Blessed Pius IX, a gift. The Pope sent a photograph of himself, signed with a verse from the Gospel of Matthew. 
Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Even so, Kurtzer is hesitant to say Blessed Pius IX had a friendship with Davis, or the Confederacy he led. The Pope was not terribly worldly. Of course, he had never been to the United States. He didn't understand the U.S. or American history. And he, of course, would never have met uh, Jefferson Davis. Uh, so, you know, in a way, there's there's no friendship there. There's a, There did seem to be some feeling, uh, perhaps just because the Pope himself felt embattled, uh, losing his temporal powers, losing his role as Pope King. Uh, he may have, especially as the Civil War uh, began to proceed and the South began to lose, have felt a certain kind of uh, solidarity with the leader of the Confederacy, but, um, you know, it's hard to characterize that as friendship. It's complicated. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Carl Bunderson. Guys, that is our podcast today, the story of two unlikely friendships and one friendship so unlikely it actually wasn't. Guys, C.S. Lewis said that friendship is the thing that teaches us to love the world, that we can't love the world if we don't first learn how to love our friends. So let's learn how to love our friends and how to build friendships with people who don't always see the world exactly the way that we do. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Carl Bunderson is our fact checker. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks this week to Richard Jesse of EWTN Radio and Father Francesco Basso for voicing the letters in our Confederacy segment. And remember, no man is a failure who has friends. See you next week. <laughs>